I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He's the hitman for hire who claims to have turned his life around. And nowadays, Alan Wilson says he's writing poetry and staying away from his former gang, the Kinnahans behind bars. Just weeks ago, the sinister criminal begged a judge to be lenient and claimed he'd live an honest life when he was allowed to walk free. But at the special criminal court, Justice Tara Burns said Wilson, who has twice pleaded guilty to conspiracy to murder, was involved in a highly sophisticated, meticulously planned attack in front of a large group of civilians, which had left two victims with lifelong injuries. She gave him 10 years and refused to backdate the sentence. So who is Alan Wilson? And has he really gone straight? Today, I'm talking to journalist and author Stephen Breen, whose book, The Hitmen, details Wilson's life of crime. He tells me of the two faces of Wilson and how he can switch from loving family man to black-hearted killer in the blink of an eye. How he was once christened the madman by a vicious gangland boss. And how his recent sentence called a halt to his plans to get back to business. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. It was interesting that Alan Wilson was named in court as a member of the Kinnahan crime gang because it would seem to me that he would blow with whatever wind came in and what's peculiar and and particular to him maybe is that he has offered his services up to anybody who'll pay. Yeah, I think when you look back at Alan Wilson's career and his involvement in organised crime, it was Brian Radigan who nicknamed him the soldier and the madman. And that only came out when the Gardaí were doing their investigations into the murder of Mario Rostis. And as part of their investigations, they established that Radigan had given Wilson this name because of his willingness to do anything, but also because of his willingness to work for anyone. There was no loyalty uh, shown by Alan Wilson in terms of the criminals he was dealing with. On the one hand, he would have been dealing with dissident Republicans, well, structured, well-organised major criminal gangs operating across Dublin. And of course, we saw in 2017 that he firmly, firmly uh, showed his true colours when he was working for the Kinnahan cartel. Mm-hmm. So just before Christmas, at the end of, of 2021 there, he um, has been before the courts again in relation to a shooting. Um, I think he was initially charged with the attempted murder of Brian Masterson, Wayne Barrett and Austin Purcell. But he took a guilty plea on conspiracy charges. Um, now, Wilson's already in jail. So maybe let's let's start with the, the case just before Christmas, the most recent one, and what this means for his sentence. Well... He's in jail already, and that relates to the investigation by the Garda National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau into the attempt by the Kinnahan cartel to murder Gary Hanley in uh, September, October, November of 2017. And as part of that investigation, your listeners will know that 
the Gardaí had the uh, listening devices installed in the vehicles that members of that criminal enterprise were using when they were targeting Gary Hanley. And of course, Alan Wilson was a major part of that criminal conspiracy. But when Wilson was under the, the, the spotlight by the Gardaí, he spoke openly to his colleagues uh, about the Players' Lounge and that in, related to the incident in July 26th, 2010, when three innocent men were standing outside the Players' Lounge in Fairview when a gunman walked up with two handguns and opened fire and hitting three men. And it's only through the grace of God that those men you know, weren't killed. Um, they suffered very serious injuries. They still suffer injuries to, to, the, to today. Um, it, was a, it was a shocking incident and indeed described by Gardy as one of the most reckless, like a narco-terrorist style attack that you would see in, in the streets of Mexico. But Wilson, when he was under the spotlight by the Gardaí, spoke openly about the Players' Lounge attack, where, to quote his own words, where he said, you see that job there, I done that. So he, he was boasting uh, about this, and that's what ultimately led to him being prosecuted uh, for the, the incident at the Players' Lounge, where he was initially charged with attempted murder. And that's because three innocent men almost lost their lives. So the would-be hitman essentially shot himself in the foot by boasting to his colleagues that, you know, he had been responsible for this other uh, shooting. Now, in 2010, the Players' Lounge was the scene. These three men that we've mentioned, Masterson, um, Barrett and Purcell, weren't the target of this shooting. There was another guy who at the time was kind of running riot in gangland. And as crime correspondents, ourselves and our colleagues would have known all about him, but maybe the general public didn't know much about really what was going on at that point when when the reports of that shooting um, started making their way onto the airwaves. But Alan Ryan was the target and Alan Ryan was the head of the real IRA at that time in, in Dublin. And he was kicking indoors and looking for protection money from everybody. And he was he was really, really annoying uh, some of his uh, his his gangland contemporaries, wasn't he? Well, yeah, I think when you, when you look back on Alan Ryan and his gang at that time, they would claim to be uh, soldiers of Ireland fighting for Irish freedom, you know, raising cash for the so-called war effort in the north to, you know, for the real IRA to engage in targeting British military personnel, m- members of the, the police force as well. But the reality is like, Alan Ryan was leading a very lavish lifestyle. He was very flamboyant. You know, he enjoyed going to pubs, to clubs. He, you know, he looked after himself. But at the same time as they were taxing, uh, drug dealers in Dublin, they were keeping money to themselves, but that, that also raised some concerns within the own structures of the real IRA. And indeed, at that time, you had Alan Ryan and Sean Hunt, who was a well-known veteran uh, cigarette smuggler, someone who was also involved in Republican paramilitaries over the years. He had good connections to the provisional IRA. So when Ryan starts flexing his muscles, putting pressure on Sean Hunt as well to, you know, to cough up uh, from the, the cigarette smuggling that he was involved in. And then that just leads to tension. It leads to paranoia and concern among these various factions. And that's why Sean Hunt recruits Alan Wilson and two, and two other individuals to target uh, Ryan at the pub. Now, Hunt would have been making millions bringing in cigarettes. Of course, it's one of the more low risk activities, I suppose, in criminality. But it's always been under the ownership of the provost. They've um, got all the connections. They source these cigarettes in factories in Thailand and Indonesia and they ship them across the uh, 
the world uh, into Ireland and they're sold in housing estates under the counter in certain shops and at markets, including a number of them, I think, up in the north of your direction. But um, it's very lucrative. But the provosts have always kept a handle on it, haven't they? That sort of older brigade of the provosts have have kept ownership on it, which I find amazing that they still kind of they still rule that, don't they? There's so much money to be made from that industry. You look at Eastern Europe as well, where they had all the smuggling routes, you know, going back during the years of the conflict before the ceasefires. In the north, you had, you know, guns coming in, but also illicit cigarettes as well. And especially if you look along the border counties as well, huge profits being made, which were during the conflict, the Republican paramilitaries would say that that money was being used from the cigarette sales to uh, fund their so-called war effort. But in reality, it was to fund and help them lead lavish lifestyles, build big houses. And that was the same for Sean Hunt as well. I mean, he had a lot of foreign holidays every year, went to Spain. Uh, a, a lot of the times during the year and there was when people were making lots of money it also it, it led to um, concern among other members of the, those paramilitary groups Nicola where um, people could see that the vast amounts of money that were being made and they wanted a slice of it but people because they were making so much money were reluctant to share that cash and when Sean Hunt saw someone like Alan Ryan you know coming behind him running the real IRA in Dublin and you know asking uh, criminals for money or else they would face the consequences and indeed putting pressure on Hunt as well to cough up money Hunt wasn't going to go up lightly No and I suppose they really do have to protect that turf because even if they're letting in another so-called paramilitary and they're going to pay them they're showing a weakness and that's what it's all about keeping your 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 industry is all about keeping you know showing your power and um, and so much money as you say there was some years ago I was on a, a mission to try and uncover how much it would cost you to buy these things and all the rest of it and went off to Indonesia where we did a deal undercover, you know, claiming to be sort of members of a, well, sort of suggesting rather than claiming to be members of a paramilitary organisation and uh, did a deal with these very innocent Indonesians who really didn't care who we were. They were just, they were doing business. They were running a, a legitimate cigarette factory, an enormous, big, huge place. And ultimately they weren't really supposed to transport the stuff into Europe without paying the duty on it obviously but they were willing to do this and they were charging us 100,000 for a container of these cigarettes now we didn't haggle so there was no doubt we were being diddled Um, but they were going to get it as far as Croatia for 100,000 and a container of cigarettes at the time would have been worth about 1.2 million on the black market now that's some markup for your money and 100,000 compared to the kind of money that you'd have to to, you know, to, to invest, to bring in drugs. It was for nothing, really. And it seemed to me to be very low risk because even if I had been caught, I probably would have got a rap on the knuckles or maybe a suspended sentence or maximum two or three years. So, you know, the provost protected for a reason. I digress. Sean Hunt was not just a cigarette smuggler. He was a very powerful figure uh, in organised crime. And he was kind of somebody who took members of that Wilson family in under his wing many years before this and um, was seen as nearly their mentor. He was the godfather, especially to Alan Wilson's cousins. You look at Eric Wilson, a well-known hitman whose whole background was in organised crime and also in effect killing people. Keith Wilson as well and also John Wilson. And Keith Wilson 
was the man that uh, Sean Hunt turned to when Collie Owens was shot dead in 2010. He turned to Keith Wilson and he recruited Keith Wilson to shoot the killer of Collie Owens, who was Daniel Gaynor, of course, another um, real IRA figure. So that showed you the connections that Hunt had to the Wilsons, but also to the real IRA and to organised crime. And Hunt was essentially like a father figure to the Wilsons. He, they were people that he could trust. They were people that he could do business with. But when he recruited Keith Wilson to shoot Daniel Gaynor, Wilson made a mess of that because he left a gun behind, he left uh, clothing behind, and he ultimately received a life sentence for that. And indeed, before the shooting of Gaynor in 2010, it was Hunt who turned to Alan Wilson and the guard he believed Keith Wilson and also John Wilson to target Alan Ryan at the Players' Lounge. But I had a story in the paper recently where we got CCTV footage of the incident showing the gunman in the Players' Lounge attack just casually walking up a handgun in each in each hand and opening fire at very, very close range to those three individuals. So that wasn't about Alan Ryan. That gunman would have known that wasn't Alan Ryan who was standing out on the busy street. That was just three innocent punters. Sorry, a doorman and two customers who were at that pub outside and he opened fire. And even when we look at his trial, Nicola, in uh, just before Christmas, Wilson talked about uh, to his colleague when they were targeting Gary Hanley, he talked about how he shot one of them in the head and he couldn't believe that the, the CUNT survived. So that showed you again his contempt for human life, his um, his callous nature and, and how proud of it he was, the fact that he was involved in this incident. Mm. And um, before Christmas, when he does appear in, when he did appear in, in the special criminal court, quite weird uh, stuff came out. He was claiming that he's behind bars, that he's a changed man, that he's writing poetry. He seems to be penning all sorts of tomes to the authorities, obviously, claiming his innocence and God knows what else. But he's a really strange character, Stephen. And obviously he is um, key to the the your book, The Hitman. He is, you know, his his kind of intricacies are, are detailed in that. But... How do you see him as an individual? Is he somebody who is, I read somewhere recently, I think it was our colleague Ken Foy was writing that he was being held on a wing in prison, which is really just a sort of a a step away from the central mental hospital. He's sort of been described as a psycho, which isn't very PC these days. But do you see him as somebody who maybe has some sort of personality disorders? I I think... When when you look back at his involvement in organised crime, and in 2008, it's only in the summer of 2008 when he becomes a suspect in the murder of Mariara Rostas. At that time, the Gardaí compiled reports on Alan Wilson and they say he's very courteous when stopped by the Gardaí. He's very plausible and very decent. So at that time, even though Brian Radigan had christened him the madman and the soldier, he wasn't that well known to the Gardaí, and it, but it's only when he becomes a suspect in the Rostus investigation that the, the guards get to see at close hand his um, his involvement in organised crime. He's linked to two very uh, brutal, aggravated burglaries in West Dublin and also in Terenure as well. But I think when he's charged 
with the, the murder of Mario Rostas and he's being held in remand, we get to see the real Alan Wilson. And that relates to him threatening one of your colleagues, Nicola, uh, threatening to take him to the next life. And he makes these threats in a telephone call to his mother that is recorded uh, on prison, of course, which is then handed over to the guardies. So for someone who claims to be a major criminal and someone who uh, lives in this, uh, this reputation of someone who's extremely violent, here you have him talking about taking people to the next life with him. So we, on the one hand, we get to see how of his contempt for human life and how he's willing to uh, arrange people uh, to, to, to be murdered and their families to be targeted as well. He also threatens a guard or two. But I was speaking to a, a, a former guard uh, in relation to Wilson's behaviour when they were investigating him. He spoke about on one occasion where... Wilson's mother, Mary, invited the guards into her house and Alan Wilson was lying upstairs surrounded by candles and was talking to himself about how and what it must be like for people who are suffering but when they know that they're going to you know they're going to face uh, execution or they're they're going to be murdered and these different warped uh, conversations about his background as well and but also if you look back at him in his early years general Martin the general Cahill was his uncle. This is he is someone he has idolised. He didn't do well at school either. But and I do think you get to see someone who's a bit of a loner um, in society, but also someone who is willing to do whatever it takes to be uh, to have a, a a fierce reputation within the realms of, of Gainland. And I think that progresses even from twenty eleven when he's first arrested, and also at that time you have a letter that's recovered in his prison cell. And the letter gives an insight into his personality where he's giving instructions to his mother to target um, an individual uh, for murder because, to quote him, he said, if this individual lives, um, uh, he will be going to jail for life. So it shows you that throughout that period, for over a decade, that human life has meant nothing to him. But then if we look at his personality, when he's being watched by the Gardaí for the Gary Hanley investigation, he talks about his family, he talks about his kids, putting them to bed. And on the same level, he's talking about going into a pub with a machine gun and shooting people. So here you have this unique and bizarre personality of someone who trying to show off to his, his colleagues involved in this criminal enterprise and then at the same time trying to lead a life as a family man. He sounds like somebody who was a misfit from the beginning and then who tried to fit in somewhere and, and somehow in whatever worlds he could. I suppose Ratican named him the, you know, what was it? The Madman? The Madman the, and the Soldier. The Madman and the Soldier. Yeah, I remember. I remember the first time I heard about him, it was this, the guy, the soldier. And I actually went to have a little look and he was sort of marching. He did have this sort of little weird uh, military style to him and military hair shaved and he sort of walked like a soldier but um, Rattigan I think at the time you're speaking about was at war with Freddie Thompson of course the, the famous Crumlin Drimna feud which resulted in so many murders but uh, Alan Wilson as a freelance hitman was punting both of them and he was actually doing his own reconnaissance and coming up with suggestions of who could be killed and how easily and then offering his services to both of them. So in a way, you, you, no wonder Rattigan called him that. Um, but that was for him, in if you can put yourself into his world business, you know, that was his business. His business was in murder and he was going to get paid for that. But the 
murder of Mariora Rostas, which of course he was tried for and acquitted. But when he was seen by Gardaí as being a suspect for that murder, that was something completely different. That was suspected of being a um, a murder on a young teenage girl, probably sexually motivated and carried out in circumstances where she was she was probably kidnapped and held against her will. Just remind us a little bit about that tragic um, young girl and what happened her. She was an 18 year old girl who had only been in Ireland three weeks. Uh, she arrived in Ireland in December 2007 and then on January 6th. 2008 she was um, she's from the Roma community so she joined her family in Ireland and basically had, had come to Ireland for a better life um, hoping to get a, a job hoping to, to live with her family uh, but obviously moving from one set of poverty to what they had experienced in Romania the harsh realities of life there but coming to Ireland and um, the father had difficulties with his language so he, therefore he found it very hard to find any work so in part of Roma culture they would uh, resort to, to begging to, to try and look after their family so that's what happened that day Mariora Rostas and her younger brother Dimitri were begging in Lombard Street in, in the city centre when a car pulled up an individual spoke in Romanian, the, the term Sefaci, which means are you okay, and offered uh, 10 euros to Dimitri and told him that he was taking his sister to a McDonald's to get some food. So that's the last time anyone uh, saw of Mariara Rostas. But around that time, the Guardi were baffled. They initially thought it was an arranged marriage. They they thought maybe she'd, maybe she'd gone to England. or They looked at all different avenues, a huge investigation into missing persons, and they only got a break in June 2008 of that year when a, a, a mystery caller contacted the Guardi and said um, that um, a, a, the nephew of either Martin Cahill or Martin Foley was responsible for that young girl's murder and she was being held captive in a house in Brabazon Street. And Brabazon Street was the house where Alan Wilson's sister, Maxine, lived. So that's then put the Guardi on the, the, the path that Alan Wilson was a suspect in this. So the investigation continued, but it's only, Nicola, in 2011 when Maxine Wilson's partner, Fergus O'Hanlon, who was Alan Wilson's best friend, had been troubled by uh, what he claimed to have witnessed, had been troubled by this young girl's disappearance, and he decided to cooperate with the Gardaí. He led the Gardaí to uh, a lonely, uh, isolated area in the Kapur uh, mountain range of the Wicklow Mountains in January 2012, and that's where the guards discovered uh, Mariara Rostas' uh, remains. Uh, a few months after that, then, Wilson was subsequently charged with her murder, but in 2014, he, he was acquitted of the murder. And O'Hanlon really was seen as being a bit of a chaotic witness by the time he got into court and uh, um, Wilson, as we say, was acquitted. He has never been convicted of a murder, although he has these convictions now for conspiracy to kill. Um, In other words, he intended to, but just didn't quite get the right person or get there. Um, the conspiracy to kill thing, I noticed that he he pleaded guilty to that, but had obviously not taken the uh, attempted murder charge. There's some changes coming with conspiracy to murder. I think the sentence is going to be increased in the near future. Increased to life. So it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a very serious offence. But I think on, obviously when Alan Wilson was charged in relation to the Players' Lounge incident, the attempted murder of three individuals, he was also facing a life sentence. So I think it was in his own interest to mm-hmm. uh, 
to um, ad admit to the conspiracy to murder where he claimed that he was recruited by dissident Republicans and he, his job was to source the car and the guns. Now, at the start of that investigation, the people identified were Alan Wilson, Keith Wilson and John Wilson. So Keith Wilson's now serving life. John Wilson was killed in 2012 and Alan Wilson, Gardy believed, was the gunman. But as a result of the latest court proceedings, it, that didn't uh, emerge who was the gunman because Wilson had only uh, admitted and the DPP accepted that, that he was a uh, conspiracy to murder. But he, when he was being interviewed by the guards, it's one of the rare occasions where he's spoken directly to the guards uh, about the case where he, he realised and accepted the guard investigation team from Clontarf had done a really thorough job on investigating this incident. And But when he was, when he was referring to the statements that he made in the car to his co-conspirator in the Gary Hanley investigation, Alan Wilson had claimed that it was bravado, and you know he didn't mean anything by it. But I think it also that give a that investigation give a a really detailed account of his modus operandi, where he talks about how many traffic lights he will need. He spoke about how when they murdered uh, Gary Hanley, they would be taking the same escape route as they did in the players' lounge. And he even put a black bin bag around a lamppost to signify you know, a direction that he would take. And, and he was very paranoid and concerned, but he still, even though he was con uh, very aware of, of what he was getting involved in and, and trying to plan everything to a T, his escape route, you know, he still spoke openly mm. about what he was involved in. And that's what ultimately got him caught. And Stephen, the weird thing about that was, and they did play some of that... Um, audio surveillance that they, they got from those cars during the the court cases for those that were charged in relation to the conspiracy to, to kill Gary Hanley. But he did speak about those things, but he also spoke about his kids and he spoke about, um, you know, what he was going to, how he was going to get the money together to buy them phones. And he spoke about drinking, you know, um, oh, he was drinking Captain Morgan's or something like this. And he was giving advice to his his co-accused about how to not get a hangover. And I mean, they were having these conversations that were just like you were listening into some normal like pals sitting in a coffee shop or in a pub, um, you know, talking nonsense, really. But um, it was really strange. It just showed the absolute lack of value they have and a lot of these guys have for human life. It is just seen as another job. They could be going with a DHL delivery to give you the last books that you bought from Easons or whatever. I mean, it's exactly the same. They're waiting for you to arrive back to the house. They can hand you that package or they're arriving to put a bullet in your head. I think it, it provided those transcripts provided a fascinating insight into the behaviour of not just Alan Wilson, but also his cousin Luke Wilson, who was also part of this conspiracy. And on the one hand, Alan Wilson was talking about how he had fallen down a flight of stairs and he was concerned that the ambulance men um, might find cocaine that was in his pocket, how the guards came to visit him as well. And he was just talking about, oh, he'd only fallen, he was taking drink, he was taking drugs. But before he was in, in taking a lot of alcohol or drugs, in the early years, say 2008, even before that, he was someone who didn't really take drugs. He didn't socialize much. He didn't interact with people. I know we spoke to people for the book who said that he was someone, if there was a party on, he would stand in the corner. He would keep his head down. We wouldn't say too much. But then on this occasion in 2017, is he showing off 
to his friend where he, he's talking about, on the one hand, going in and showing his pedigree in organised crime by shooting someone or being involved in the players' lounge to a second later talking about how he, he, he he's not looking forward to putting the kids to bed. He, he hopes the kids don't get up in the morning. He wants to have a movie night with his partner, wants to get some Viagra, wants to take some Coke and then get some vodka as well. And then that can just switch almost immediately to hold on your man standing outside his house here we have to go in guns blazing and take him out so it just it just changed within seconds of talking about shooting someone in front of his wife and his child to talking about his own family background and how important his kids were to him even though like we we talk about gangland being a very violent place and i'm sure like me you've met plenty of people um who inhabit it most of them, certainly I have met, are actually fundamentally decent people. And I think there's a very finite number of them who are like Alan Wilson, who will uh, take that role of hitman, which is probably the worst role, really, and the most high risk within the structure of any gang. Um, you're facing life in prison every time you go out to do a day's work. So there has to be something different and something missing from the brain of a guy like him uh, to have so little empathy to show or no empathy. I mean, let's be let's be 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 straight about it. And yet he can love his children and love a partner in whatever way he can. He's five children. Is that right? Yes, but not just his children as well. He absolutely idolised his mother, Mary, and his sister, Maxine. And there is no question that when Mary R. Rostis uh, was abducted from the street, they obviously knew what had happened as well because Fergus O'Hanlon was obviously in a relationship with Maxine Wilson. But they chose to remain silent. Even when Mary Wilson was being uh, interviewed by the Gardaí, she was making it out as if her, her son was an angel. Um, he was doing no harm. He was simply her carer. He wanted to be a taxi driver, only the guards were making life difficult for, for him and her family. And Wilson indeed himself during the last trial uh, for the Players' Lounge, spoke about the suffering his family had endured because of the, the fact that he had been charged with Mariara Rostis, uh, her murder. And obviously his, his mother passed away, but we know that during the Rostis investigation, she was caught herself with a note in Pier Street Garda Station, alleged trying to rip up and destroy this note, again giving her instructions to arrange someone's murder. And also... You have um, her being involved with another uh, woman going to pubs in Crumlin and also in Tala and to threaten people who they believed were witnesses, who her could be witnesses in relation to the Rostis investigation. So for him and Wilson and for her, it was all about maintaining the the, 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 the close bond that they had growing up and maintaining the, the close family fabric that they didn't want anyone else to interfere. And another occasion we were taught about Mary Wilson and Alan Wilson having a conversation and Fergus O'Hanlon was there and Mary Wilson saying to Alan Wilson, Fergus has to go because he knows too much. So this was her, this was a mother as well. So what sort of relationship was that with a mother and a son talking about killing someone? when they had their own family background and above all to them it wasn't about the fact that a, a young 18 year old Romanian girl had been abducted held captive brutalized and buried in the mountains it was just about protecting the core Wilson family that inner circle um we started off by saying that he was named in court as a member of the Kinahan crime gang um that certainly that tight-knit crime gang wouldn't see Wilson as one of them would they 
Well, not not now because he claims to have turned his back on crime. He he said publicly in court that he regrets getting involved in the enterprise to murder Gary Hanley. He's he's also talking about that that he's now turned his life around. He's doing poetry, although I don't know how he's doing poetry because we got access to one of the letters that he wrote to um, his mother instructing her to kill someone. So that would need a lot of work done, so it would. But, you know, he claims (laughs) to have turned his life around. But at the end of the day, he was only out of prison for three months when the Kennehan cartel came calling to him. The Kennehan cartel placed their trust in Alan Wilson. This wasn't just some you know, young guy they picked up off the street, but again, this was someone they knew who had experience of organised crime. They knew who could handle a weapon. They knew he had been linked and the suspect in, in murders in the past and who was willing to offer his services. And so they had no problem bringing him into their inner circle and for him to play a key role in targeting and planning the whole logistics around the murder of uh, Gary Hanley. So without question, because of where Wilson was from, his association in the past with Freddie Thompson, he was someone that they could do business with. But he was also someone who was expendable because the people who paid for him uh, to get involved in this enterprise, they they weren't the ones going to prison people in Dubai. It was uh, Alan Wilson. No, indeed. And no doubt they um, uh, they don't have to, anything to do with him whatsoever now. Would he be a worry to them? I mean, is the likes of Alan Wilson with his his, you know, his oddness within that world, his claims that he is no longer he's turning his back on crime, he's going to turn his life around. Is that something that is going to worry them or is it something that maybe you just pay him an extra few bob to keep quiet? Is it is it a kind of a clever ploy on his part? Do you think? I, I think he, he he would cause concern to the the upper echelons of the Kinnahan cartel, especially because Alan Wilson, like they've been doing business with him for a long time, but he's someone who they know is very reckless, is very volatile, but is also about self preservation. So, what does Alan Wilson know that could harm them? So that would obviously cause a concern to them. Is there a danger down the line when Wilson is released from custody? Will he go back into organised crime again, or? is the fact that he's saying publicly that he regrets being involved with the Kinnahan cartel. He claims that he's no longer a member of the Kinnahan cartel. Now, is that going to cause them some concern? I think it could, but it would be interesting to see, obviously, when he comes out of prison, how the landscape will have changed. And of course, the Kinnahan cartel plays very little value in human life. And if Wilson is expendable and going to prison, is he expendable that they would have no hesitation in recruiting someone else to take him out if he knows too much about their uh, operations? So I think it, it could and be a concern. Stephen, when is he likely to get out? Because he did get another sentence there yeah. for the uh, the players' lounge. So how does that all work? And so that's so the player he was due to be out this year in May in relation to the players' lounge, but because of the fact he was only convicted in December twenty twenty one, that means his ten year sentence that he received is just starting from that date. So it's not the run concurrently. So it's an extra. Uh, extra sentence that he's received now so it's likely to be the next or seven or eight years when he could possibly be be freed okay and he's 42 so he would still be possibly under the age of 50 um if he survives in prison yeah i know you're working on a new chapter to update your book the hitman which you hit men excuse me which you wrote with your your former colleague owen conlon um should be out hopefully around april if you look forward to that um but it seems to me that uh you can keep going because I think Wilson's going to give you plenty more chapters as as the time continues. He's um he's somebody who's never really very far from the headlines and never far from either trouble or certainly from uh you know 
claiming to be changing it all. So Stephen Breen, thank you very much. Thank you, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.